Can you hear me? It's okay. Well, <clears throat> I'm doing my yogi job. You have your yogi jobs. This is mine. Um, but listening to a Dharma talk is different than listening to a lecture or a public lecture or a college course or a high school or wherever. It's not so much to gather information. We're already drowning information. I have nothing spectacular to say, nothing new, same old stuff. In fact, Doug laid it out, the whole retreat, that's it. We're just going to be repeating ourselves over and over again. So it's not a matter of gathering information, but a few of you were taking notes during the retreat. Please don't. Let me, uh, just a few reasons why not to. What is being said here can be, you can find it in many, many books, tapes, DVDs, videos, people. It's uh, quite available. What's more valuable, much more valuable, this is a retreat where we, are, we become monomaniacal. And so your job now is to listen, is to learn the art of listening. If you want to call it mindful listening, fine. What does that mean? It's not a matter of you agreeing and disagreeing. It's a matter of you, in order to listen, you have to listen to your own mind because you'll hear something and perhaps it sounds good. And then the mind will go off on some journey, uh, linking it to all kinds of other things. And maybe a minute or two comes by, you're not really hearing what's going on. And then you're back. And then you disagree and the mind spins off there. Or you're thinking about anything. So it's not to banish any of that. How could you do that? But to be sensitive to how the listening is progressing. And as you start, you can learn how to listen to your own. In order to really hear another person speak, you have to listen to yourself simultaneously. It can be done. And you have a good opportunity here to practice it under such simplified and protected conditions. Far more important than accumulating more information is developing this ability to pay attention in a wide variety of situations. Not to take notes, the information is readily available. It's also distracting. Um, a retreat is, we build a little culture here, even for just seven days. Uh, Doug described the, 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 on the first day, the, the um, support for the culture, the frame, the container. And everything we do contributes to us living and enjoying the beauty of silence, even with so many of us together. In fact, it's even more beautiful if we can maintain and protect the silence, because it helps us. It helps us go inside. It's a journey of self-discovery. That's, that's what we're doing. And this is one way of enhancing our ability to really get to know ourselves. Well, self, what's so important about self-discovery? Everything. It's urgent. What's the relationship of self-discovery to daily life when we go back? It's totally linked to daily life. And in a few moments, I'd like to get at daily life here. Um, but first, for many years now, um, I've attempted to convey a certain attitudinal shift so the first evening, I always do it. Those of you who've been coming for quite a while, you know what's coming. 
Um, and if you want to tune out, you can, but only check if you're really doing what I'm saying. You might, well, I've heard him say that so many times and just fantasize. Sure, you may have heard me do it, I say it many times, but are you doing it in your life, what I'm about to say? What I've seen over the years, and that's part of why we started a center in Cambridge, right in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah, <laughs> one extreme, we're perched between Harvard Square, you all know what that is, and it is MIT, and then Central Square, where people have had a very hard life, and it's all there. And the first talk, when we opened the center, the first talk I gave, I took uh, the Vasudhi Magga as an ancient commentary on the Buddha's teaching. It's not the Buddha's teaching, it's commentary on it by a Sri Lankan uh, monk. And uh, he lists where not to start a meditation center. I think there are about 10 or so. We qualify on almost every one. Uh, we, we started a center, you shouldn't have a center where there's political turmoil, where there's business and commerce, where there's a lot of traffic, on and on. Uh, the reason that I felt it was necessary to start it there is that the times have changed. And um, many expressions of that change are why we're all here. Uh, some of you may have been monks or nuns or wish to become monks or nuns, and that's fine. Probably most of us are not, have not, and will not be uh, going into monastic life. So we need a practice that prepares us for where we live most of our life, which is not at IMS or the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center or any of these other places. We need a practice that truly values daily life as just as valuable as what goes on here. I'm not saying it's more valuable. And it depends, each individual has their own question to answer, ask and answer, put so beautifully by Socrates a long time ago in ancient Greece. How is one to live? It's a big question. Each one of us has to decide, and you probably don't answer, answer it forever. I certainly had conclusions how to live, and I lived that way as best I could, and then it changed, and it keeps changing. So we need a practice that uh, is appropriate for us. And I found that sometimes uh, monastics who had spent their entire life, mainly I've, the teachers I've worked with are from the Thai forest, uh, forest tradition. I've spent time there and also some of them have come here. Um, many of them are very, the ones I've known, wonderful people, generous, uh, but have not a sense of what lay life is. Also, not used to the fact that people who are not going to be monks or nuns really have a lot of energy for this, really want to do this. They're used to the monastics being the, the real meditators, the real practitioners, and everyone else supports that. Well, of course, it's going on here as well. Support is essential. But what's different is seems to be a release of energy, not just in this country, but you see it all over, of lay people who have ordinary lives, like ourselves, um, who really want to uh, bring these teachings into their life. And I think we have to uh, develop something that is appropriate. for. So what I found, having done many long retreats in Asia, but here, silent retreats for months on end, sometimes alone, sometimes with groups just like this, is that 
this situation uh, enhances our ability to develop certain qualities and skills that are invaluable. So everything I'm about to say is not to in any way negate the value of going on retreats. Quite the contrary. They're wonderful. They're jewels. Uh, Come and do as many as you can. But probably most of your life will not be here or in places like this. So when we come here, it's set up uh, in certain ways, silence and uh, you all, you know, how we've been living, living and most of you have been practicing for years, so you already understand what I'm saying. But what I discovered was you could be a sincere practitioner and sit X number of retreats in silence for years. I, I discovered it mainly at first in myself. And when you come home, all it takes is being in Harvard Square for half an hour and all your hard-earned samadhi down the toilet. Gone. Because somebody gets in line before you at the supermarket. I thought I was just an inch away from sainthood. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so what is that? In other words, it seems like the challenges of daily life, of relationship, of work, of family, of being in relationship, those in it want to get out, those out want to get in. Uh, school, paying, unemployment, it's endless. And then now we live in a rather hazardous and dangerous world. Uh, the, the basic principle of the practice is as relevant now as it ever was. The core teaching of the Buddha Nothing has really changed in the human constitution. I'm not saying it never will. Greed, hatred, and delusion, the three mental poisons. They're alive and well, expressing itself through different content. Only the stakes are much higher because we're so brilliant at devising science and technology and ways of destroying each other. And it seems like we haven't had enough. We're doing it more and more. And so what I discovered was as valuable as this is, and it's invaluable, uh, we needed, uh, daily life needed to be accorded uh, deep respect, true respect. Now, officially, we all say that. Everyone who teaches this all over, everyone says daily life is uh, just is practice. Practice is daily life. But in my view, and it's just one person's view, it can become the biggest cliche in town. It's very easy to say, go home, and then, and it's because it is difficult. Relationship is difficult. You, we have not learned how to, how to be with each other. It's so evident. The extreme disability reveals itself in war. A nightmare. Every generation. It's horrible. It's a, it's a, it's a nightmare. Some of us have been in the military. You know what it is if you've been. And yet, Everyone talks about peace and is getting bigger and better weapons. So there's something insane going on. And yet, the tools that we have here, and I'm not saying, this is not a messianic message that let's all meditate and save the planet. Be great if we could. And now there is a mindfulness revolution. It's on the cover of, I forgot, Newsweek or Time. And is mindfulness everything. Mindfulness tennis, mindfulness water skiing. <laughs> Uh, I'm all for it. Can it make? Can it be any worse than it is? You know, it's, I don't think it can do more damage. Um, so we need a practice that does that. Now, here's where we re we reverse things on this retreat. Typically, 
unless people have changed, because I, I'm not in on everyone's retreat, I used to, you know, my, my colleagues and I, we talk. At the end of a retreat, there's what is called the integration talk. Some of you know what I'm talking, you all know. At which point, well, we're now going home, and maybe there's a talk, and if it's a long retreat, maybe a few days to get you ready, because it's going to be a very different kind of life after, let's say, months of, of practicing like this. And the language says a lot, the integration of what with what. We're integrating what we learned, we're going back to the real world. Now, you've heard me say this, but it's really said, we're going back to the real world. Well, what is this? Where we are, is this not life? To me, there's just life. These forms have all been invented. Do you think this came down from a ray of, uh, from a, behind a cloud? We made it up. Bring a hundred people together, tell them to shut up, sit together, give them some good food, have people who are nice to them, and teachers who are nice, try to be mostly nice to them. Sometimes they tell you don't take notes, but other than that, <laughs> Uh, we made it up. We made up a lot of things. Most things have been made up. They're constructions. They're fabrications. And they're useful ones. That's Some form like this has been going on for thousands of years and has helped people and continues to. You wouldn't be here if you didn't know, know this. But then when you leave here, uh, if you have... Any, that's why a part of the uh, container is attitudinal. We really need a, a, an authentic, genuine shift in attitude. For example, a few years ago, someone asked a question at CIMC, at Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, which is mainly where I teach. That's the urban place in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, the question was, I know you keep talking, all you teachers, you keep talking about daily life and is, is practice, practice is daily life. It's all invaluable. It's one, stri- one seamless way, you know, you know the, the language saying, but I honestly don't feel that. I feel that sitting is far more valuable. I just can't seem to be convinced that, that daily life can have the liberating power that retreats and sitting quietly can. Could you help me out with that? Whoa, hard one. And... Part of it is because in this particular person who asked that question, and I really appreciate it because it was honest, and it represented a lot of what what maybe most of us feel. Yes, the Buddha, he's not vacuuming, he's not uh, washing the car, he's not mowing the lawn. He's also dead. I mean, just the statue. (laughs) He died a long time ago. I think he solved his problems, let's hope so. But what about us? Uh, so my only feeble answer was something like, uh, yes, I understand it's extremely difficult and challenging. But if we don't fa- come face to face with the world that we live in, because this is, this is the way it is for us. We're not living in, in a forest in Thailand or Cambodia. We're not living in, in very uh, wonderful monasteries in Korea and Vietnam and Japan and China, the old ancient ones, which are way up in the mountains and perhaps you live out mo- most of your life there. We're not. And so, as difficult as it is, if we can turn it around, which I think that's our challenge. Do I have a healthy respect for how difficult it is? Absolutely. And, 
Every day I learn. How to, but with the right attitude, because I've been attempting to do it now for many, many years, with the right attitude, um, it's quite inspiring and quite invigorating to do it. And, and it's enriching. And it do, definitely changes your life. Ask my wife. Please. No, that's take my wife. <laughs> it's an old Jewish joke. It's a, uh, in other words, it, it can make a difference, and I'm going to go into uh, some of that here. Now, how do, what, so what does that have to do with here? It means if we can begin to change that attitude, and if I had to put it in simply, uh, one of my uh, main teachers was a woman from India named Vimla Takar, an extraordinary teacher. And someone once asked her, well, what's the purpose of life? And she looked at him like she was dumbfounded. And she said, to live, of course. You know, uh, isn't it obvious? But then the question is how? Well, each one of us faces that ourselves. But speaking in general, what we face is, you know what you face, I know what I face. So here we are. Now, if we had a model, it might take some reflection and people like myself repeating it over and over again. Prior to any of these forms, this form, Zen forms, Tibetan forms, lay them all out, all the different techniques and methods, and there's a, an abundance of riches over thousands of years that have accumulated in these different cultures, methods and teachings that are beautiful and very, very helpful. Okay, uh, so now what for us? You know, wh what do we do? What do we do? And... The reflection would be not to get caught up in the particular forms, as valuable as they are, and to use them, but to understand prior to all these forms is just life. And isn't it, we're going back to the real world, or sometimes staff people, if any staff people here, I apologize. I don't mean it as an insult, it's just, I don't know if people speak this way anymore. We talk about going into yogi land. In other words, if the staff had four or five days off, I'm going into yogi land, uh, and then you go back to work. Well, what was your job here? Disneyland? I mean, uh, it's just life in a different form. That, that's the attitudinal shift. It may sound like a truism so obvious. Why is he wasting time, our time? Get to real dharma, for God's sakes. Because if you don't have this attitude and you don't value it, no matter how much you hear it, what happens is you don't, you don't put your best efforts into facing what constitutes your particular form of daily life. Now, we have a daily life here. There's only daily life as far as I can tell. If you just look around, it's daily life. Do you not go to the bathroom here? Do you not eat meals? Do you not get dressed, undressed, wash? You say, yeah, but uh, no, we're all in silence. Yeah, I've been on these retreats. We're in silence, but we're eyeing each other up. Come on. We notice that person is wearing two different socks. That person took too much food. That person looks interesting. Hmm, I think I'm going to stay around till the last day. I was planning on leaving earlier, but not now. You know what I mean? So we're we can't help it. it. It's conditioned. We have reactions. It just comes out of us. That's all right. You can't stamp that out. It's not necessary to. 
But there is a life going on, and we have to work together, sometimes in the kitchen. We have to work with teachers and so forth. There's definitely a life going on here. Now, what is correct action here would be different than what is correct action in Cambridge. Correct action here is to maintain silence and follow the rules that we've set up, which are rough guidelines so we can live in a civil community for this week together, helping us to live as harmoniously as possible, and in the process, helping one another. Each one of us must do this alone, and yet having other people who are doing it alone, accompanying you, helps. Otherwise, why would you come back? Because, you know, I just looked at some of the sheets. So you've been on lots of retreats. You know that it can be tremendously helpful to have like-minded people. We're all rowing in the same direction. It's great. It's one form that's useful. Make use of it, great, and honor it and appreciate it. And when the retreat ends, that's it. Move on to the next form, whatever that is. I'm not going to go into that too much because then your mind will you'll start going home. Before you were, while you were home, you weren't really home. You were thinking about the retreat you were coming here. And as we get closer to the end, you won't be here. You'll be thinking about what you have to do to going home. You may have already started. I don't know. Um... So that means, what is your yogi job? I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, do it. Do it. Uh, uh, approach it. And if you don't like it, let's say, oh, yuck, I don't like They gave me the working the dishwasher machine. It's like the boiler room of some bottoms of a ship, the Titanic. I don't want to, it was much worse in the old days, where we had to do it by hand. Okay, and look at my friend who came here. He has something that takes seven minutes, and now he's out taking a nice walk in the woods and all. But me, what do I have to think of? The boiler room. Uh, so there's a lot of material. If that comes up, that's what you practice with. It's not interfering with, with the practice. It is the practice. Nothing is interfering uh, with the practice because every, you know, what, whatever is happening to you, in other words, the life proceeds here now to here now, to hear now, to hear now, it keeps being like that. Matthew and Doug have been saying that. Which I'm sure you know it already. For those of you who are tempted to write notes, see what I mean? We say the same things over and over. Okay, so take each activity in its turn. Now it's the same thing, be mindful. We've been saying that, everyone says it, and that's the best instruction you can get. But there's a tremendous amount that can be learned here and with that attitude can be the transition, in quotes, because I, I don't believe in calling it integration. What's, there's nothing to integrate. It's just life. In, there's different forms, and correct action varies. If you're driving a car, correct action is pay attention to the road and the equipment and minimize any other talks and all the, you know, those gadgets we hold and drinking and all the rest of it. Uh, if you're hugging your child... Your grandchild, as I look around, including at myself, uh, hug a child for goodness sakes. I, oh, I love you, love you, I love you, uh, and you're a million miles away. See that it's not to, it's not a pronunciamento saying you must love your grandchild. It's that's what I mean. It's self-discovery. You see, wow, I'm divided, and I do love my grandchild, but my half of me is separated from it. So you you learn that in the seeing of it it tends to fall away. So I would encourage us all to view this as a chunk of life, a beautiful one, a useful one. Let's, while we're here, let's do what's so wonderful about this. 
Um, and I think I'll leave it at that. Let's see. I'd like to get something started to put even more oomph into encouraging us all. That includes us. We're trying to practice too, believe it or not, we are. Um, <clears throat> to see how the deepest teachings of the Buddha can come about out of um, relationship. And by relationship here, I don't only mean to people. Relationship to your ideas, relationship to things, relationship to nature. Uh, to me, one, an alternate language for putting the Buddha's teaching in, although it's, it's really there, it's not much of a departure, if at all. The Buddha's teaching was revolutionary at the time, and in certain ways it still is. It's bloodless and it's silent and it's gentle, except when it gets warped sometimes. And it's, we're learning, we're living the same life that every human being must live. Our body goes to what it must go through. Seasons come and go, everything. We're not exempt from that. We're just human beings, everyone. No exceptions. No matter how fancy the outfit, whether you shave your head, grow a long beard, uh, wear beads, wear blue jeans. We're all finally human, and here we are. And we face the same existential challenges. Okay. Um, early stages of senility. Who can help me get back to where I was? Thank you. Okay. So, um, what I'd like to get started this evening, and then we'll continue it, including when we go the, the day before, uh, the morning that we go home, is this kind of accidentally happened in Cambridge just recently, where we have these uh, day-long retreats, call them intensive practice without toys, in other words, no talks, like today, no talks, no no interviews, no discussion groups just sitting and walking to you blue in the face. That's all we do for a whole day. And people, more and more people love it, and we do it. Um, and someone, and I don't give any instructions because it's only for people who've been practicing for a while. And so I said, no, no teachings. And then someone said, oh, please, just give us one hint. You know, just, just something. So I came up with a buzzword just came out. I said, okay, don't turn away. I didn't think much of it. It sounds okay, it's not bad. Don't turn away. I don't think we could sell it, but it's cute. Uh, at the end of the retreat, people, that was wonderful, don't turn away. Whenever I would get distracted, you know, I would say, hear your voice, don't turn away. And I would come right back. i say, whoa, look at that. Accidentally, we discovered gold here. So now I'm going to milk it. No, you can't milk gold m metaphors. I've left college a long time ago. My language is broken down. Dharma makes you dumber in certain ways. Vocabulary drops away, all that. Um, don't turn away. From what? I don't know, whatever it is. Like, don't turn away from uh, mindful listening and learning. It, it's all about lear learning is inescapable. The Buddhist teaching has everything to do with learning. And some of the ancient schools and even current ones in, in Asia are referred to as schools. This is a school. But what are we supposed to learn here? We're learning how to live. Put in other language, the Buddha is saying, human race, all of us, we don't know how to live. Just take a look. 
We're just making each other miserable. I was too. I've learned some things. Let me share it with you. Maybe this can help us. It's called wisdom. It's, learn, it's learning how to, and it is totally and utterly and completely dependent on self-awareness and learning. You've got to get to know yourself as you are right here and right now. The first step is the last step. Because we're always going to be here and now. You might say, well, some, off in the future I'm going to die. Uh, well, the, yeah, but when that time comes, it's going to be a real moment. It's going to be just like this. That's all there is, is this. It's just this. You've heard that phrase again and again. It's just this. It's true. So, uh, so, so what? Uh, what I'd like to uh, go into now is that uh, a, an interesting teaching that I received from Ajahn Buddhadasa. Ajahn Buddhadasa was uh, one of the teachers I studied with in Thailand. He lived out his entire life in the forest. Uh, and um, many of us studied with him, went to uh, IMS teachers, at least we all read his books and all. And I, spent, I learned a lot about Anapanasati, mindful breathing from him. I uh, learned a lot of incredibly useful things from him. And he just, anyway, I, where is it? He was big on, on the importance of emptiness. Now, emptiness is very often shunyata. It's vital in every Buddhist lineage. Everyone, it's often called the crown jewel. And it's finally, the Buddhist teaching culminates in empty, in emptiness. Empty for, of what? Uh, it doesn't sound so great. Not to an accumulative, an acquisitive mind. In other words, unless we're thinking and doing and getting and creating and carrying and assembling, we don't feel we're really alive. We equate life with doing and thinking. Emptiness is, it's not that you become a prefrontal lobotomy patient. It has a special kind of meaning the emptiness in which we will go into. Now, when, before I met Buddha Dasa, I was very impressed with it. I saw, finally, it all boils down to this. And I got it from, I was in Zen for 10 years. I got it, the Zen approach to it, the Tibetan approach. And, uh, and I had, it was a, I was confused. And also, I think I confused a generation of, t of students in Cambridge. I apologize if any of you you're probably still confused, but don't blame me for everything. Okay. Um, here's what happened experientially, and then I stopped teaching it for a while until I met Buddha Dasa. Um, I would teach emptiness and see the looks on people's faces. There was sort of furrowed brows and looking up at the ceiling, and it just sounded, well, what's so valuable about that? And, uh, and also, I found myself having difficulty in communicating what it is about emptiness. And in seeing it's, when you teach, it's nice if it looks like at least some of the people are getting what you're talking about, especially if you still have a full of yourself, which I'm sure I was is. You catch the is, I'm humble too. Um, and at a certain point, uh, I started to notice that I was teaching it less and less. And I was wondering why. Then a friend of mine 
who was in a psychology class at MIT, said, what's happening to you is what happened. We were in this experiment. He was in this class. Some of you may have read about it. It's written up somewhere. It was a psychology class. The teacher taught uh, Skinnerian, Pavlovian behavioral psychology, reward and punishment. If you reward something, people do more of it. You punish them, they do less of it, like rats. Okay. Yeah, I, right, us. Um, and so they, you know, people at MIT, they're, they're, they're kind of clever, and they devised this scheme that every, t he was a pacer, he would teach, he was a nervous pacer, and he'd go back and forth from one side of the lecture hall to another. And every time he went to one side of the hall, they would look fascinated and really intrigued. Wow, far out, awesome, cool, those are the new ones, right? And then every time he went to this side, people would start getting out pencils, scratching, blowing their nose, <coughs> cleaner, clearing their throat, uh, side by-play conversations. And then he'd go this way, and they would become fascinated. Uh, and this experiment, according to this, my friend who told me, he said, at a certain point, it was, a, it was an hour and a half class, they had him boxed in in one part of the room. <laughs> Uh, and then they shared it. He had a sense of humor, apparently. And, got and I realized, well, that's what's happened to me. I, you know, every time I teach this, I get these looks. And finally, I noticed, you know, I stopped teaching emptiness. And then um, I went to Thailand and spent time with Buddha Dasa. We're not going to just be able to launch this. We'll continue with it in, uh, in a few evenings. Here, he, he took two quotes from the Buddha which sound strange. And he put them together and gave to me the most practical, concrete understanding of emptiness that all of us can do right here and continue doing. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's accessible. Here, here are the two quotes. Don't give up when you hear them. One, this is, these are from the Buddha, translated from the Pali. Birth is perpetual suffering. Now, some of you who are you know, you like that. You know, maybe you're suffering a lot and you've reread, you've read the Theravadan teaching as life is suffering. Yeah, yeah, me too. Oh, I'm normal. It's just normal to just be a miserable miscreant, you know. Uh, at any rate, birth is perpetual suffering. Hmm. Then he also had another, he played these two off a number of times in talks there and in personal conversations. Then he said, true happiness consists in, the, in eliminating the false idea of I, you know, of me, self. Uh, whoa, okay. Well, by birth is perpetual suffering, he then, he had devised his own language as conventional language. In conventional language, birth would mean uh, when a, a woman gives birth to a child, there's suffering involved. We all, you know, if you watch TV, you saw, uh, what was it, the, the midwife show, which I thought was terrific. Um, Calling the midwife? Call the midwife. Is that it? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, but there's Dharma language. In Dharma language, he said, uh, birth, it doesn't mean that. It's the birth of me and mine, of selfing. Let's use that term. It's a nice term that has emerged a few years ago. It means where suddenly you identify with whatever it is and you make a self out of it, me. Now, then the Buddha says, true happiness consists in eliminating the false idea of I. Now, all the Buddhist schools, and you probably have read them uh, yourself, 
are talking about uh, not self, anatta, uh, no mind. In other words, that uh, there's no the self is a fabrication, and but we are delusion is solidifying it and believing in it and living as if it was some solid independent entity known as me. That there's someone, there's something called Larry that really exists as a Larry. And it's over and over again, it's emphasized that this is, an, is delusion, the extreme delusion. So what, uh, what Buddha Dasa is saying is true happiness is seeing that. And we're going to fl- uh, flesh this out in the future. Um, and birth, he said in Dharma language, uh, birth, it's not the birth of a, a physical body from a mother, physical mother. It's uh, a psychological birth. In other words, uh, because in a given moment, it's not, you can, if you live your life and you don't make self out of it, there's really not, it's not necessarily suffering. It could be hard what you're doing. You may even have pain, but you're not turning it into torment or grandiosity the other way. Uh, by making this is happening to me by identifying with the mind states, the moods, or the activity as being me. Uh, so that became his at birth, and what he demonstrates is that that's really the meaning, the the deepest meaning of the four noble truths, and it's the essential meaning. The Buddha says, "All I'm teaching is suffering and the end of suffering." The, finally, when you go to the root. Uh, for example, if, if you're suffering, let's say during this retreat, if you've had a few moments, not discomfort where the mind has created some anxiety or some form of discomfort, and you look carefully at who is suffering right now, the, well, I am, of course, then find out what is that. It's a notion in the mind. And put simply, our practice is letting go of all these notions ideas about who we think we are, which we believe in, and if you make I am Larry, you're stuck with Larry. You aren't. I am. Well, you're stuck for seven days. <laughs> and emptiness is emptying yourself of all of these uh, fantasies and uh, scenarios and stories and um, imaginings about even what, what the Buddha taught and what Buddha, what anything is. And it requires clear seeing. I think in order to end on time... Hmm. Okay, so I'm going to link these two together. Uh, when Buddha Dasa helped me understand this, and I haven't gotten to, to it really yet, you'll see that it's... Well, maybe I ought, because a couple of days are going to go by. Let's say... Well, how does that apply to life here as, as uh, yogis on the retreat? Let's say, uh, have any of you heard your mind say, let's say if your mind uh, is scattered, you got here and you couldn't, not only couldn't you follow the breath, you couldn't find your nostrils. And you've been practicing for 35 years, done 1,800 three-month retreats, been to India, Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, the moon, you know, uh, and you have a bookshelf set of bulging with uh, all the titles are starting to sound the same, but you know, <laughs> and you have all these magazines with beautiful looking people, happy and gorgeous women now and gorgeous men meditating in nice tight outfits, they're now meditating <laughs> and doing yoga and you know, uh, all of that. Okay, let's say you have, if in, the, in those moments where you've made 
I'm not a good yogi or I'm not a good meditator. In that moment, you got born into I'm not a good, I'm, I'm no good. First is I am. That's sort of the mother of it, the source of it, or the expression of the source. And then I am what? I am a wonderful yogi, just limiting it to that. I'm a terrible yogi. I, 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 and then you can add whatever you like. Now, what uh, Buddha Dasa is saying, and this, he, he takes it, he gives quotes from the Buddha. The Buddha is saying that this is benign. That is, because the mind is going to do that. It identifies with what happens. I see my granddaughter. We're, we're building in suffering for her. There's no way around it. We look into her eyes. First of all, we've given her a name. We tell her how beautiful she is, how intelligent she is. Don't do this, do that. You know, we're conditioning her just the way Pavlov did with rats. But that's part of she has to learn how to live in this society. And then she'll have to come here and unconditional that. <laughs> Fortunately, I won't be around to have to... Uh, so what the Buddha said is the suffering, and it's not like when you say empty that the mind has to be blank or that the world goes away. It's that the, uh, the sense of I that emerges is if it's accompanied by awareness, then it isn't a birth. It's benign. See, it's not that you, because otherwise you're going to try to cut all these things, kill selfing. And people talk that way sometimes. Take no prisoners, kill it. Uh, in our practice, it's much more gentle, but it's got a ruthless side too. It's saying, look at everything and none of it. We're, it's a, in a sense, a striptease. We're letting go of everything, taking off. When you sit, the instructions will change and you just watch everything arise and pass away. And you, we're learning how to not be attached to that to just watch it without grasping, without pushing away, it falls away and the mind starts emptying itself of its own content. Maybe it's just for 10 seconds, maybe it's for half an hour. You've had, I'm sure you've had some of that experience. Uh, And that we call the conditioned realm because it's all arising and passing away. And at a certain point, it stops. Maybe it's just for 30 seconds. And it's a wonderful feeling because you're not there you, in quotes, are not there. Because you need to be there to be... Someone's got to be there to suffer. If there's awareness with it, it's benign. In other words, it comes up, and awareness... It's, you're not nourishing it. Uh, Buddha Dasa used an example of... Well, I, don't, I don't like the example. Of, not, of, of starving an animal and then it dies away. Forget about that one. I'm, vegeta- <laughs> I'm a veggie, you know, the whole foods and all that stuff. Um... But we are not nourishing the sense of every time you identify with something and take it to be you, you're nourishing it. It's becoming stronger. Now, it's very powerful to begin with. That's why often uh, in Asia, the image of an elephant that's tethered, which is what we have to calm and, and stabilize and concentrate, why do they pick an elephant? They also use a wild, drunken monkey going from one branch to another, endlessly searching for bigger and better bananas. They're both adequate, but the thing with the elephant, an elephant's powerful, and it can do a lot of damage. So is our sense of self, very powerful. It's deeply conditioned. It's intertwined with our character, uh, so we can hardly tell. And yet, the practices of awareness, as the seeing becomes clearer, you can see it. You can feel it. You feel different. The whole quality of consciousness change when you're awake as it happens and when you're not. And if you prefer, 
identifying with everything as being me and you, full speed ahead. Now, I'm not telling you to believe in emptiness or that there isn't a solid self. Because the Buddha emphasized question everything in the Kalama Sutta. So that means, let's say you never heard any of these theoretical teachings. If you watch your mind, you can't help but see that something emerges that represents itself as being you. It operates, tells you that you're you. And maybe if you identify with it, you just got born. And if it says you're a rotten yogi, you just made rotten yogi, so you have rotten yogi. And then it dies. And then the next moment, no, you're not. You're a good person. You're a good you're, Yeah. And then suddenly, well, which is the true one? Well, none of them are. They're fragments. We're all fragmented. That's why more and more they're translating where all this leads us to wholeness. I know it's a, a word that's in now, W-H-O-L-E. Probably Whole Foods is very happy that I, that translation is in. But are they taking over the world? They're everywhere now, right? Anyone live in a town where there's no Whole Foods? Really? Where do you live? <laughs> okay, they'll be there, don't worry. Um, I think I'm going to stop there. Oh, I went over a bit, but it's not. An experience in Korea that was very helpful for me, too. Uh, I was in Korean Zen for five years. And uh, Stephen Mitchell who some of you may know, he's an excellent translator and, um, and a poet and has, uh, he know this story has been, it's, he wouldn't mind, if he's a, an old friend, he wouldn't mind it being told because it's been told. Uh, we were in Korea together. Uh, he was in, um, and uh, Stephen did a lot of work in art history. He was a, he's a very much of an aesthete. He knew a lot about ancient Asian art and loved it. And so our teacher, the Korean Zen master, Sung San Sanim, <clears throat> said, tomorrow we're visiting a monastery before we went on retreat. He said, it's got the most beautiful Buddha in all of Korea. And Stephen was beside himself. Because, oh, I can't wait to see it, the most beautiful Buddha in all of Korea. I was a little bit excited, but not having such an, a refined taste as him, I didn't uh, get my hopes up as much, a little bit. So the, net, the day came, and it was pouring rain, and we had, the monasteries are way up in the mountains, usually. And we made our way. We had rubber shoes and gray outfits, and, uh, and we were soaking wet and full of mud. And finally, we got to the top of them, and then we got into the meditation hall. And they thanked us, the monks who were there, and they said, welcome, come in. And, you know, and we came into the meditation, we, and we wanted to see the Buddha, so this famous Buddha, the most beautiful Buddha in all of Korea. We went in, we sat down, and we looked at, it would be where this is, where this Buddha is, and there was nothing there, except in Korean, a calligraphy, which said, if you can't see the Buddha here, you better go back down the mountain and practice longer. <laughs> get it? Okay, maybe we're done with this subject then. Just don't get born. Okay, could we have a few moments of stillness, please?
May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Don't turn away. Maybe it'll work here too, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.